and welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor Podcast. I'm Andrew Dick, an attorney with Hall Render, the largest healthcare-focused law firm in the country. Today, we'll be talking with David Auerbach. David's an institutional trader at World Equity Group. He specializes in real estate investment trusts, or REITs, preferred stocks, close-in funds, and ETFs. He's well-known in the REIT industry for being a thought leader, mentor, and commentator on trends in the industry. Today, we're going to talk about healthcare REITs, other REIT product types, the industry in general, and some of David's other interests. David, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. David, before we talk about your current role at World Equity Group, let's talk about your background. Tell us where you're from, where you went to college, and uh, what you aspired to be. I'm uh, born and raised in Dallas, Texas, and with the exception of the four years that I spent at the University of Texas at Austin, Welcome Horns, uh, I have found myself back in my old neighborhood, and uh, I did spend a couple of years going to Southern Methodist University in their grad school program at night, uh, but I have spent my entire career here in good old Big D. So after you got out of college, you ended up working as a financial advisor. It sounds like you've always worked in kind of the equity space, but but talk about your kind of your, your first job out of college. Sure. So uh, to rewind further than that, growing up, I was always fascinated by uh, Wall Street, uh, watching CNN in the early days, learning about Warren Buffett, reading the Wall Street Journal when they used to publish stock tables in the paper. Um, I was just drawn to it at such a young age. And my parents love telling the story at like six, seven years old, kids are up watching cartoons and I'm watching business news just to watch the ticker. So I knew at a very young age that I wanted to go down this road. Um, I graduated from UT and uh, jo- joined up with a local practice, uh, a CPA's financial advisor, where he, uh, my boss was a certified public accountant and he had a book of uh, Wall Street uh, for, you know, clients and as a result, he brought me on. <clears throat> he helped me get my licenses. And it was a great foot in the door uh, to learn about the business, learn about the retail network. And from there, I went to a firm called Green Street Advisors, uh, which had their trading desk based here in Dallas. Green Street uh, was con- is and was considered the preeminent REIT research firm in the country. Um, I was very privileged to learn from some wonderful mentors, people that I'm still in touch with. Uh, to this day, that they really paved the way for my entire career. And so uh, the running joke with that job is that the day I started in March of 2000 was the day that the market rally officially ended. And so every couple of years, I'll get an email from my former boss. and just like, you know, my portfolio took a hit the day that we hired you. And um, I'll never forget it. And so I spent about 11 years working at Green Street and uh, just under 12 years. And it was just a great spot. I'm, I'm still very close with a lot of people. And it made me the trader and person that I am today. Uh, from there, then I went to um, a firm called Esposito Securities here in Dallas. I was working on uh, REIT relationships, the ETF universe. And uh, from there, I found myself now working with World Equity Group, I'm also uh, working with a partner on some uh, consulting and IR type information. And we'll get into some other things, but it was really where Green Street got me my start in this career, and I'm very lucky. So, David, what what does it mean to be an institutional trader for those listeners that that may not be familiar with that title? 
Sure, uh, that's a great question, and I do get that question very often. Uh, institutional trader would be somebody who would talk to uh, a family office, a hedge fund, a mutual fund, a bank, a pension plan, some type of big institution that would have multiple millions of dollars under management or more. You have to qualify to be an institutional investor. There's various checkboxes that a, a, a firm would fill out, but it's different than a typical retail broker advisor who would be dealing with uh, what I call the mom and pop investors. Uh, so whenever I recommend a company or I'm talking about something, I always refer to the mom and pop in Missoula, Montana. That's where I always fall back on to Missoula, Montana. Um, but it's a whole different audience. And there are high net worth individuals that can qualify under some of the accredited investor, institutional investor um, checkboxes. But traditionally, it's firms that that's what they manage as an institutional advisor. Got it. And so it, you're, you're, when you're making you know, purchases or, or selling uh, equities, these are presumably high, you know, big dollar amounts we're talking about, lots of shares, not, not the retail investor. There are some retail investors that do trade that kind of volume, but yes, that is correct. It would be it would be big size orders and volume on behalf of those guys, correct. Got it. Okay, so David, just, just to provide some more background, I, I, I met you a couple of years ago. Uh, you've been a great resource um, for me and for many others. Uh, and I think I... I found you because I had heard you speaking on one of the NAREIT podcasts where they had an update uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, just want to thank you for all the um, information you share with um, uh, the REIT community and just a, a great resource. If, if you haven't met David, he's uh, always willing to help. And uh, we, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in, in a little while. So, but, but David, we appreciate your, your thoughts. Um, uh, Let's talk about the healthcare read industry because that's that's really the the space that um, I work in, and that's what our audience is primarily concerned about. We'll we'll hit on that, but but we're going to dive into some of the other um, read asset types. Um, so we just finished uh, the third quarter earnings report um, for I think just yesterday or today uh, was one of the last healthcare reads reported. I saw that. Uh, one of the read analysts just sent out a, a note about uh, national healthcare investors. Um, but, but let's talk about the big three, uh, David. Um, when we talk about the big three, that's uh, Ventas, Welltower, and uh, what is now called Health Peak. Um, those are, in my mind, diversified healthcare REITs, uh, big players in the space with uh, really uh, different models in some cases. Um, give us a flyover of kind of your perspective of, of those REITs today. Uh, I know we've talked in the past about Ventas and its CEO is, uh, she's really dynamic. Uh, she's tough. And, uh, you know, I, I have no doubt that she's going to uh, uh, make Ventas uh, perform very well after we come out of COVID. But uh, give us your thoughts, David. Sure. So first, from a very high level perspective, I, I've been out on record and I will probably until the day I die, I will say that the healthcare REITs is the only sector that I can think of that will literally make money off of every single American or any individual whatsoever at some point in their lifetime. No matter how you look at it, some kind of healthcare company is going to make money off of you, whether you have to go to the hospital 
the doctor's office, a medical office building to see a doctor, rehab, uh, sadly, hospice, end of life, assisted living, senior housing. There are so many different segments of the industry that as a whole, the healthcare REITs combined will make money off of every single one of us. And I always end it with, you know, as they always say, you know who's undefeated in sports, don't you? Father Time. And so as a result, Father Time, you know, hate to say it, we are several minutes older than we were when we started this conversation. So as a result, that's why I'm such a big fan of these companies. You know, Ventas, Well Tower, good old HCP or now Health Peak, as you comment, they are the big three. Uh, but they've been around for so long and they run such effective companies and they make money off of every single American. And what's what's really interesting, when you look back at when COVID started, the one industry that took a hit right off the bat was the healthcare REITs because of them finding the cases in some of the, in some of the senior housing communities. So the talk from the sector has been, okay, this happened. How are we going to address this head on Face the face the pandemic inside our communities, and then deal with the with the after effects coming out on the other side. Well, we're not out on the other side, but what did we learn from earnings season? It wasn't as bad in the third quarter as it was in the second quarter, and as it was towards the tail end of the first quarter. These guys have expected to have occupancy declines this year. I was just reading the Well Tower release right as we were getting on the air here, and. I think their number, their shop occupancy came in down like 125 basis points, but they were projecting down 125 to 175. So if you're coming in within your expectation, it's almost like a win in itself. If you remember going back, you know, put on your hat from like 10, 15 years ago, when companies announced earnings, remember there was always two numbers. There was the first call estimate and then the whisper number. Remember the whisper number? And if you did it, it's one thing to beat first call. That's nothing. But unless you didn't, unless you beat the whisper number, that's what everybody focused on. Well, for the healthcare REITs, it seems to have been over the past couple of quarters, it's not everything that they're doing. It's what's the number of the, the occupancy, looking at their same, you know, same housing occupancy number shop. And if they're able to come in at or within a certain range or better than, then that's a win. And you're noticing that happening. So, D David, you know, we've, we've talked before about the big three, the different strategies, uh, a, a lot of new headlines over the last couple of weeks. One in particular you and I were just talking about is uh, Health Peak, formerly known as uh, HCP, moving its headquarters uh, to Denver. They were looking at uh, Dallas and, and, and Nashville, and then they ended up in, uh, in Denver. And then Health Peak's also been in the news because um, – their strategy has has they've given uh, more emphasis over the last couple of years on life sciences properties and uh, and then they've announced that they're going to start uh, disposing of an, uh, a, a large volume of senior housing assets. So maybe you could kind of give your your thoughts on Health Peak and then we could talk a little bit about Ventas. You know, it's, it, the Health Peak news is really interesting to me. I remember when they rebranded to Health Peak from HCP just a couple of years ago, not even a couple of years ago now. And people were scratching their heads trying to figure out what's Health Peak? I don't quite understand. And now, as you just mentioned, with them announcing this big senior housing portfolio disposition, as well as moving their headquarters, this is a massive corporate and strategy shift that the company is undertaking 
But, you know, there's there's good healthcare companies that are out there outside of the big three thinking about what Health Peak focuses on. And then you have guys like Omega Health, OHI, Medical Properties, MPW, you know, where there's there's guys focusing on the hospitals. There's guys that are focusing on the medical office aspect of it. You know, I commend Health Peak for making this change. Obviously, a lot of people are taking advantage of good relocations. I mean, Colorado has seen a massive inflow of folks recently. And so what a great place to consider building your headquarters. Um, Everybody is relocating to Dallas too. Of course, Texas has very favorable property taxes and no state income tax. But I think if you're noticing here that this, I don't think their, their, their strategy shift is done. I think this is just another step in things that they're trying to evolve into because one of the things that I love to talk to you about, and I always, I always pester you about this, is you know talking about father time. The nursing home today is different than the nursing home that our grandparents were in. And frankly, what we are going to move into down the road is going to look different than what we see today. And so I'm curious, thinking about the next generation, I know we're going to talk about some more of this down the road here in a little bit, but thinking about how we are so technology oriented today by way of our cell phones, our iPads and all this other stuff. How is that going to be implemented and integrated into the nursing home of the future? How is that going to be implemented into the office building, the medical office building that we walk into into the future? And I think that one of the things and and I know we're going to talk about Ventos in the life science space and the lab innovation. But I think that, you know, just like a lot of companies like McDonald's has their test kitchen you know, I think some of these other guys have the, like, you know, the hotel reads, just to shift gears, a lot of the hotel companies like Marriott and Hilton have like a lab set up on their campus where they're working on future innovation. This is what the hotel room of tomorrow is going to look like. This is what the office building of the future is going to look like. And I'm pretty sure that some of these guys in their HQs as well, I think they're trying to figure out what's the healthcare property going to look like, you know, 30 years from now, 20 years from now, because a Gen Zer who lives pretty much behind the screen twenty four seven, that's gonna they're gonna expect that to be implemented in their daily lives. Where you know at the next chapter where they move into. So these are the things that keep me up at night. Yeah, nope, all good points. Uh, and the, you mentioned nursing home. You're right. Uh, LTC, Omega, really good companies. What I consider more of a pure play, long term care REIT. Um, uh, t- talk about Ventos because I know you 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 really like Ventos in the sense that uh, uh, Debbie is a dynamic CEO and uh, just seems to um, uh, provide really great leadership and uh, the company historically has done very well. You you summed it up great because when you look at as far as leaders are concerned, and, like Debbie is always one of the first people that is always mentioned. Um, you know, when I was growing up in the industry, and I believe they still do today, you know, her nickname was Diamond Debbie because everything that she touched turned to gold. And Debbie is so well respected. And more importantly, she's such a nice person. Like, you know, I remember talking to her at a conference so many years ago and I went up to her and I, I was like fanboy around her gushing. And she's like, stop, just quit it. I, you know, I'm a nice person. But I joke, but in all seriousness, when you achieve the status that Ventas has achieved, when you're as big as they are, when you're in the S&P 500, when you've earned this cachet, it says you're doing something right. And 
thinking about how the company has evolved just in the past 20 years that I've been following it, they've done one, two, I want to say two or three public mergers. You may have made no better off the top of my head, but I think three public mergers. They've now going towards some of these life science deals, like the big joint venture they just announced with government of Singapore last week. With what they're doing with One U City in Philadelphia, or I believe it's in Philly, and some of these other places, you know, they're looking at the next step as well. Um, you'll notice, like Boston Properties, which is an office REIT, announced this big, huge lab space deal just a couple of days ago in Waltham, Massachusetts. You know, Alexandria, who is considered to be the pioneer of life science and lab space, they're always in the conversation. But Ventos has made such a push over the past couple of years that this is a big shift. You know, it's not just we're going to operate a bunch of communities and hospitals. They're focusing on, again, the development side of things right now. And one of the other, you know, thinking about REITs and how office REITs and healthcare REITs and where they're in space together, you know, it costs a lot more to build one of these properties because of the sterile nature of lab space and the white glove, white coat, wearing the hood and everything that these guys and, and the and the um, the walls. And, you know, you think about like Homer Simpson, where he's, you know, puts his hands in the gloves to do. That's what these guys are building. And as a result, the fabrication costs of these properties are so expensive. But remember, and we're going to talk talk about this in some other se uh, sectors in a little bit. Who do you think pays for that stuff? You know, Ventos is the one building the property, but guess what? That cost is going to be passed off to the tenant that's moving in there. And so they're already inherently able to charge an additional premium on the space because they've gone to this effort to build out a uh, white coat lab facility. So I just, you know, as Debbie's, you know, she owns a piece of the Pittsburgh Penguins. I'm a Dallas Stars fan. I can't blame her. Pittsburgh's got a good team. But thinking in terms of hockey, you know, one of the great expressions is don't watch the, where the puck is, watch where the puck's going, you know, so keep your eyes on where the puck is going to be. And that's what they're doing. They're literally, they're trying to stay ahead of the puck. So um, this is when size matters, when you have a pretty stellar balance sheet, when you're, you know, I, I have to pull up the rate, I'm guessing they're, you know, pretty highly rated, you know, your cost of capital is very small. You can go out and get 30-year money for pennies on the dollar for some of these guys and use that to build these properties that are going to be effective 20, 30 years down the road. So it's a really interesting story. And again, how can anybody not trust what she's trying to do? That's my opinion. Yeah, what, one more. I agree, David. I agree. Uh, all good points. Let's talk about Well Tower real quick, and then we'll transition to some of the other sectors uh, well Tower had a, a change in CEO, uh, Tom DeRosa, um, stepped down. Uh, the chief investment officer was promoted to uh, CEO. Uh, um, any thoughts there or how the industry reacted? Uh, Tom had been around for a while. Well Tower, I, I think, has performed you know, over a long period of time. It's performed pretty well. Uh, big company. Uh, there's, there's been, uh, they seem to be more interested in finding senior housing opportunities when you compare that to, uh, a Ventas or a, uh, health peak, but any, any thoughts on well tower before we, uh, transition? You know, you brought up a really good point about the transition because Tom was so well respected and a lot of, a lot of folks were speculating, 
What does he know that we don't know? Why, why now? What's happening? And um, Mr. Mitra has been around for so long, as you mentioned, that you know because of his experience, it's it's a natural transition. You know, it'd be one thing for them to bring in somebody from the total outside that had nothing to do with the company. But when it's really next up on the bench to take over, it's not like they're changing their strategy shift. And as you know, they also did a huge um, uh, outpatient facility disposition, like right at the same time. So this is a little bit similar to what Health Peak was doing is they're kind of shifting their strategy a little bit. But, you know, they're rebounding. They're like, as I mentioned, their occupancy came in within their target of people are watching. And so, you know, the question, the question that a lot of these folks have to answer, whether, you know, you're a retail investor listening to this podcast or an institutional guy, but the big picture that remains, and I ask you, what's your definition of long-term? When I was growing up in school, when I was taking finance classes and everything, we were taught that the long-term would mean your retirement money. And so you're 18, 19, 20 years old sitting in your first classes. When they define long-term, they're talking 50 years from now, okay? If you talk to a Gen Z kid that's coming out of college today that's 22 and you ask him what his definition of long-term is, two years, maybe five years. Their timeframes are different. So I ask the person that's listening to this podcast today, what's your definition of long-term? If you're thinking about something many, many, many years down the road, then I leave you this question of thinking about Well Tower and what they do and their properties, thinking about Ventos, thinking about Health Peak. It's not what's happening today with COVID. It's what is this going to look like 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years down the road? Now, you want my take, here's what I think. There's a reason why you've got the big three and a lot of the other players that are out there. Capital Senior, you mentioned LTC, Genesis, Brookdale, some of these other operators that are out there. When you have so many companies that make up a sector, I was always taught to think one thing. The big get bigger, the small get smaller. And in a, in a universe that probably is dominated by an 80, 20, 90, 10, and you know what that means, where... 20% of the folks control 80% of the properties or more. It means that these guys are going to continue to acquire their smaller competitors. And if you let's use Ventos as the example, as I mentioned, I think they've done two or three public mergers, but maybe more. But they, you know, when Ventos wants to grow, they're not just going to go buy a property or two, they're going to buy a company to grow. And so I think these guys are, you know, Well Tower, Help Peak, these guys, the big three are doing a good job driving down their lanes of the highway, knowing what they know so well that it's pretty much everybody trying to get in their lanes. And because of their size, they can just kind of muscle them out. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to watch, especially as we get older and as this industry shifts. But as we move on, I will say, again, keep in the back of your head. Medical office buildings, senior housing facilities, a rehab facility, drug rehab a hospital for your x-rays, unfortunately for your end of life and your hospice care, final living days, the healthcare reach of the guys that are making money off of every single one of these people. And that's you, that's me, that's my mother and father, my grandmother, my grandfather, my brother, my sister, every single one of us is going to be paying money to these guys. Yep. Good point, David. Uh, let, let's switch gears. Uh, you and I have talked about other REIT sectors before. Um, give us an idea of, of, what's happened over the last six or eight months as a result of COVID. I mean, we could all, we've all, 
heard this or read the headlines about the retail sector and, you know, it's taken a beating, but, but you and I have talked before about companies like Simon Property Group, which happens to be headquartered here in Indianapolis where I'm at. Uh, the company, in my opinion, is really well ran, uh, has some of the best properties in the world. Uh, I, I think once we get through COVID, it's going to be just fine. Uh, give us your take. I have the most respect for David Simon uh, of Simon Property Group. You will never hear me say anything bad about him whatsoever. There's some great, great, great stories that go under the radar in COVID right now, because as you mentioned, everybody focuses on the work from home situation. So therefore the office building is dead. Um, what they read about with JCPenney and Sears and some of these retail closures and the mall is dead. Now, everything, obviously there is an asterisk pre-COVID, post-COVID. We all understand that. Well, let's, let's take a couple of different sectors at a time and we'll hit on some different points. Okay. First things first, you and I are doing this podcast on the web today. I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, I hear you, you hear me. This is all being run through data centers and cell towers. Data center reads and cell tower reads have been two of the best performing sectors this entire year. So we're all Zooming, using cell towers, and as a result, these are the guys that are benefiting the most from that. Take it one more step. Okay. Don't know about you, but my wife and I, we love this little tiny website called Amazon.com. Of course, it's great. And you know, with Prime, they deliver within the hour and it's it's awesome. Well, think about where all that stuff is stored. All that stuff stored at big industrial warehouses that are owned by a bunch of REITs. And so another sector that's done amazingly well this year is the industrial REITs because Amazon, uh, Walmart, Target, all these guys have these big, huge warehouses that store their products in their properties. Um you mentioned retail, Simon. Okay, so Simon has been very active this year. They just had their earnings a couple of days ago. It's a great transcript to read. If you haven't, I highly suggest you read it. You know, David's really in tune with what's going on. And what it, Simon's been doing, they joined up with a company called Authentic Brands, and they have been going out and acquiring a bunch of retailers this year. And people are like, but, but why? Why are you buying JCPenney? Why are you buying Lucky Brands and Brooks Brothers? And you know what is the benefit there? So the answer is there's a variety of reasons. But the big 10,000-foot version of why they're buying this, think about how much real estate a JCPenney owns in a property as an anchor tenant. And I'm just going to throw a number out there. Let's just assume a 50,000-square-foot box. It could be less. It could be more. But let's just use a random 50,000-foot number. Why is this important? Okay. Simon will be more than happy to buy a 50,000-foot empty vacant box and then do a couple of different things. We can bring in a new tenant that's not around there right now. And one of the questions that they got asked on their call was about a joint venture they have that you and I have talked about called Allied Esports. And Allied Esports is an esports uh, e- arena that you know kids or folks can go and watch people play video games, participate in some of these games. So instead of watching on Twitch or on one of these online platforms, it's a way to draw traffic back to the mall, the millennial generation back to the mall. If that doesn't work out, Simon would be more than happy to spend some money and taking that 50,000 foot box and breaking it up into a 20,000 foot box, another 20,000 foot box and a 10,000 foot box. And now you can bring in three other tenants to make up one space. 
more importantly, you in the call they mentioned that this has been that they're signing more leases right now during COVID on the lookout through on the other side here. That it's you know they call it the Warby the Warby effect, the Warby Parker effect. Because it's are you familiar with the term called showrooming? Have you heard the term showrooming? For those that don't know, showrooming is I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to look at the product. I'm going to play with it, touch around with it, but then go home and order it online. I'm not going to buy it in the store. It used to be very frowned upon. It killed Circuit City. Best Buy took a big hit from it. And they, if you go back and read some of their transcripts from the early 2000s, they talk about the showrooming effect. Well, now the silence of the world and some of these other retailers have said, okay, you know what? People are going to be people. They're going to do what they want to do. So instead of shunning it, let's embrace it. And a perfect example of that was Tesla. If you recall, Tesla built dealerships in these malls, but you couldn't buy the car there. You had to go home and do the process online. But they put it there for you to showroom it. Come check it out. Come press the buttons. Come hear the engine roar or not roar exactly. And then go home and buy the car online. So these guys, the Simons of the world said, you know what? Go ahead. Warby, go ahead and build your store here. Don't make any sales. We don't care. You're going to pay us rent. And then you, you have a chance now to expand your footprint. So I think that you're seeing the shift in the retail landscape of it's the, it's a, the bricks and mortar enhances their online component. Um, I'm a big fan of you know, what's happening in the data centers and the towers. And I'll give you one more statistic before we go on to a different sector. Uh, the former CEO of American Tower, his name is Jim Taslin, and he went off to a company called Lockheed Martin. He's looking out for your defense. But Jim had a great quote a couple of years ago at a conference I was at, and I use it in every interview because it just it staggers me. There's 24 hours of content posted to YouTube every minute. And that stat's a couple of years old. So if you assume things only go up, let's say that number is now 28 hours or 30 hours. That's a lot of content. Where is that being stored? It's in this thing called the cloud. It just floats above us. But in all seriousness, it's housed in data centers and servers and racks and all these buildings across the country. That's run by data center REITs, digital realty, CoreSite realty, Cyrus One, QTS. There's several publicly traded data center REITs. And another interesting way to play it's through the ETF space. If you play exchange traded funds, if you don't know an exchange traded fund, I call it a publicly traded mutual fund. Um, you can buy a basket of tower and data center REITs. There's two products out there. One is run by a company called Pacer Benchmark. Uh, and the ticker is SRVR. It's the data center and server or tower infrastructure ETF. And then Global X, which is another very large ETF issuer, just just launched one a couple of weeks ago on their tickers VPN. How appropriate, Victor, Paul, Nancy. So these are just some interesting ways to potentially play a couple of different spaces. One more sector that's getting a lot of coverage right now is cannabis. There are several. There's one publicly traded cannabis repair play, and that's Innovative Industrial (IIPR). And you've got a couple other companies that are trying to. Um, you know, get their foot in the door, try to grow in the warehouse side of the cannabis space. You have a, a big cannabis, one of the first SPACs, the special purpose entities focusing in REITs was just filed a couple, just launched a couple weeks ago, and it's involved in the cannabis space. The company's called Subversive. So you're seeing, you know, one of the questions I always ask when I get to talk to the analysts or the companies is, what's the next 
sector? What's the next industry? You know, if you go back 10, 20 years ago, nobody would have talked about towers and data centers. If you go back 10 years ago, nobody would have talked about cannabis REITs. So now the question becomes, what's the next sector? So, David, those are all good insights. Uh, you and I have also talked about some of the more novel or, or niche uh, REITs that we've seen, one in particular, Safehold REIT, uh, relatively new uh, REIT that uh, plays in the ground lease space. Uh, it's performed very well. Uh, how does, how does do those fit into your, when you're looking at kind of the REIT industry overall? I mean, I think it's a very interesting company. I love Safehold. I love the guys there. It's, you know, one of the things that I love about it is that it's a unique play. If you look at apartment REITs, there's 10 publicly traded apartment REITs, maybe more. There's 10 plus healthcare, or 10 plus healthcare, 10 plus office, 10 plus lodging. There's only one ground lease REIT that's out there right now, and that's Safehold. It's an interesting story because thinking about the Warren Buffett mantras and things that we grew up on, talk about number one, being a first mover. They were the first mover to take advantage of this situation. Number two, building an island. When you're out on an island by yourself and somebody has to literally, you build a moat around you because as a first mover, somebody's going to have to invest a boatload of capital to go and compete against you. And frankly, up in where they're located and what they're doing, there's really only a handful of guys that can truly compete with them right now at this moment in time. That being Colony Capital and Starwood Capital. And I know that they're, I think they're tiptoeing into it, but they are not diving into the effect that Safehold has done. Number three, they are backed by their parent company, iStar. Uh, now, that can both be good and bad. Why do I say that? A lot of the institutional investors and the REIT community sometimes shun the fact that it's an externally advised company by the parents. So not that there's necessarily collusion, but it's not a standalone entity because it can fall back on the parent to take care of it. But in the same breath, that's not a bad thing because they can fall back on the parent. And also knowing that if they're doing a deal, it's because the parent is behind the deal. So as an example, Safehold just did a secondary offering last night. They upsized the deals. It was in the market for two days. They were able to upsize it. But concurrently with it, they did a private placement to the company of a, of a, of a slug of stock. Fat rewind going back to COVID, Safehold was the first one of the few companies and the first company to float a public offering during the pandemic. So while everybody was on Zoom doing what you and I were doing now, they managed to get a secondary offering off on the table. And at the time, the company, rightfully so, was so ecstatic that they were able to get a deal done like this in COVID right at the beginning stages of it. The, what's interesting is that they have such a unique set of properties. It's office, it's lodging, it's, there's some apartment type stuff. But, you know, the number one rule of real estate is location, location, location. A lot of the stuff that they're investing in is the intersection of Maine and Maine is what I call it. And so because you have such good properties, with the way that the ground lease works, and I'll give you the 10,000 foot. And for those that don't know, uh, the uh, website to go check it out is uh, safeholdinc.com. It's an interesting story. But 
a ground lease, what happens is pick a building. We'll use, let's just use the Empire State Building, which is owned by a different REAP. We'll just use the Empire State Building. So what Safehold does is they go to the guys that run the Empire State Building and say, okay, guys, you run, you own the building. We'll own what's below the ground. So you will own the ground. You rent that from us. And upon the maturity of the lease in 99 years, Safehold would take possession of the Empire State Building. And what they've done is they've amassed quite a portfolio above, you know, above and below ground real estate that they when they talk about their valuation, they equate it to like a 99-year bond. And they you know, they talk about the MIT bond is in their metrics. And so it's just such a unique story that until somebody says we're coming after you, again. Who's to fight against them? Now let's flip it. They they do their earnings based on earnings per share. Most REITs focus on FFO or AFFO, so that's one caveat to be aware of. Number two, REITs traditionally have a very high dividend yield. Right now, I believe you mentioned NAREIT before. I highly recommend you go check out REIT.com. That's the website for NAREIT. Right now, the typical REIT dividend yield, I believe, is just around four percent. Safehold is well under that. Now the company says as they go out and acquires how they raise their dividend and raise the dividend and raise the yield, but it's a, it's a, again, thinking about the definition of long-term, Safehold is not a day traders type of game. Safehold is not a name that you're gonna wanna sit here and just own for a year. If you're buying Safehold today, it's what is this gonna look like five, 10 years from now as they continue to amass high quality real estate and portfolio. One other thing. If you're a sports fan, and I think you are a sports fan, they happen to be locally here in Texas, because I know this, one of their partners is somebody who used to go by the nickname of the Admiral. Do you know who the Admiral was? No. David Robinson, who was a famous basketball player who played for the San Antonio Spurs, won many, many NBA championships and was in the Navy. He was he was a naval, I believe he was an admiral, not an admiral, but I believe he was very highly up in the Navy. And so he was on the Spurs, and his company, Admiral Capital, is a partner with Safehold and some of their Texas properties here. So there's a sports tie in there for you. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I think the company's interesting as well. We see a lot of ground leases in the healthcare industry, and uh, so uh, I, I like it. I think it's very interesting. Uh, David, let's switch gears. Uh, we've only got a couple minutes left. Um mentoring. Uh, last time we spoke, you you told me you've been spending a fair amount of time mentoring uh, young professionals and you've always given back to uh, the, the REIT community in terms of your time and, and resources. I know you used to publish a um, weekly newsletter. You, you may still do that. And uh, so, so talk about giving back, mentoring, because a number of folks who listen to the podcast, they're uh, young professionals looking to uh, advance their career. It's, you know, it's a great topic, and I really appreciate you bringing this up. Um, I, I think at some point in our careers, we know that the next generation is coming up in the ranks. Um, after 20 plus years of doing this, you know, we learn a couple of things. And if I'm able to pave the path, smooth the path for the next generation by dealing with my experiences, or if I'm able to answer some questions that they're afraid to ask, you know, then that gives them a little bit more sense of comfort. And I'm also a big believer of karma and, you know, what goes around comes around that, you know, when I used to interview folks, I would at my old, my old shops, whenever we would come in, you know, usually they'd be interviewing with four or five, six other people. 
And I would always say to the person just to try to, first of all, throw them off a little bit. But second, just so they feel a little bit more at ease, I would always say to the person, my job here as I sit here and interview you is to get you to ask me the hard-hitting questions. You are to ask me the questions that you're afraid to ask because I don't want you to come on board here and say, well, nobody told me about this. I wasn't expecting this. How come I didn't know that this? And so I would always say, there's no such thing as stupid questions to stupid people. Have you heard that expression before? I have. I love using that expression. But I always, I always say, there's no such thing as a stupid question. What you may think is stupid may actually be the secret sauce of what you should be asking that you were, you know, that you didn't realize that you should ask. And so it carries through to the mentorship thing that I'm trying to do because I want people to, number one, not be afraid of the interview process. A lot of people now, because they are so tied to their phones, you know, they lose out on the face-to-face -face interaction. And when you're sitting across the table from somebody, and if you don't know how to carry yourself in a face-to-face in a -face conversation, you have to understand, you may be um, investing in this company, be a management of this company. You could own this company, which means you're going to be dealing with the media and all this other stuff. And if you don't know how to interact with people, what kind of message is that going to say to your boss, your partners, your shareholders, whatever? And so I feel like now, especially with the folks that I'm focusing on, it's the guys that are anywhere from getting out of high school, going into college, dealing with their first intern type interviews, going into grad school, coming out of grad school, going into their next positions, whatever it is. But if my 20 plus years of REITs and ETFs is able to help them understand just a little bit more of what they're walking into, or, you know, I had somebody reaching out to me today asking about Safeway because I got them an interview with the company, but he wanted to understand what is the company. And I sent him a friend's video. I'm like, watch this. If you watch this, then when you call the guy and have your interview with him today, you're able to come prepared with a roster of questions because you said, I watched your interview. You said this. Can you explain this to me? I don't understand. And what does that say to the person across the table from you? This guy spent his time doing his homework. He really cares. He's really interested. And when somebody calls me and says, I got the second interview, I got the job, whatever, that you know, that's about as valuable as the paycheck is, in my opinion. And more importantly, it could be a year from now, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, that guy isn't going to forget. He's going to remember that I helped him get to that point. So, David, uh, last question. Uh, what advice would you give to uh, a, a young professional who's looking to get into uh, uh, the real estate uh, in, uh, business? It's the same same thing I've heard that I'm sure you've heard a million times over, and I stand by it. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Networking is a full-time, 24-hour-a-day job. It's why I lost my first job as a retail broker before I joined Green Street. My boss and I had a disagreement as far as the proper times to be networking. He thought it should be an after-the-stock-market hours type of job. And I said to him, wait. If a prospect says they want to have lunch with me, I have to tell him no, because my boss said I can only network after hours. I said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And they fired me the next day because I said that. But as a result, you and I would have not connected if it wasn't from networking back in the day. I wouldn't be able to 
email David Simon and him email me back on a day of earnings without networking. And as, as I say, as I say on the mentorship platform, you never know when you're going to come across your next partner, your next boss, your next client, whoever it is. And it's all because of networking. So I would emphasize get out there, meet folks, explore LinkedIn, ask questions, learn. Um, as, as Red says in Shawshank, get busy living or get busy dying. Good advice. So, David, where can uh, our audience, uh, how can they reach you? So um, I am affiliated with a broker dealer out of Chicago called World Equity Group. Uh, my email address there is uh, David Auerbach, D-A-V-I-D-A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H at WEG, W-E-G-1 dot com. If they want to ask about uh, the uh, daily REIT note that covers the REIT sector, please feel free to reach out to me uh, at that email address or on my consulting address at David at IRrealized.com, I-R-R-E-A-L-I-Z-E-D. And I'd be happy to chat with you more there as well. Great. David, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks to our audience for listening on your Apple or Android device. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave feedback for us. We also publish a newsletter called the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor. To be added to that list, email me at adick at paulrender.com. 